If a person were to ask me, Rich, what is your highest purpose in your life? What's the reason you exist? If they were to use language that I like and I'm familiar with, they say, Rich, what is your mission, your primary mission in life? My answer, because I've rehearsed it in my mind and in my heart so many times, my answer would be to glorify God, to give God glory, to worship him, to praise him. I think this is what Jesus was getting at when he said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you do those things, you give God glory. It's my highest purpose as a human, as a man, as a Christian. As a pastor, if someone were to ask, in that particular role, fulfilling that function as a pastor, what is your greatest purpose? Well, the answer would be just an extension of that. The answer would be that my greatest purpose as a pastor is to help others glorify God much more. In fact, no matter what were to happen in my ministry life, the things that I, had, I might have dreams in my mind and hopes for, and I pray that God would multiply in the future, whatever that looks like in the future for, for, for me personally, I, I can't know for certain, but if at the end, it could be said to be true that, that ultimately by God, through the ministry that I gave great effort and pangs towards, those in my care glorified God more than that would be a win. Consider that a success. Do you know how it is that I get to do that? I was thinking about this a lot this last week. I was thinking a lot about, Lord, I just really want to serve this congregation this week. I want them to, I want them to honor you and glorify you and praise you and to, to not miss anything in life that deserves worship to you. Do you know how... You know how simple that task actually is? It's not always easy, but I realize really it's simple because all I have to do is to show you God. It's almost as though we're all standing underneath the big starry sky, you know, the Milky Way and galaxies out there and planets and stars and moons and shooting stars. And what I get to do in preaching is I get to grab a telescope and point it and I get to aim it and say, here, look, look, look. And you look through and and something that you saw like this, and now through the telescope you see like this, you go, whoa, that's what I get to do. In other words, I don't have to get clever or creative or invent things. I don't need to come up with new, fresh truths or perspectives. I just get to hold up the Bible and say, look at God, look at him. This is such a burden off for me. This is such a joy that I get to do this. Let me show you God. Look at him. A recent kind of a fun part of our Sanford routine right now. We're a routine family. We thrive on routine. And when something crazy happens, like we have a new baby and the routine gets thrown out, it's okay. It's okay. We just make a new one. Our new routine is that at the end of the night, after we've kind of concluded our family hangout time, we've done dinner time, it's getting uh, bath time has just finished up. All the kids are in their jammies. Laura takes Kayla, the newest, the little, uh, little baby, feeds her and rocks her to sleep. And I take the other kids. We all sit on the couch together. And I open the Bible and I, I read a story to them. And they ask 100 questions, try to answer those questions. 
When we're done with that time, we pray together, and then we gather around the piano. And I sit there, and I, I tinker on the piano, and we've been kind of singing through together a handful of songs. It's time for me to teach them discipline. Don't touch the keys when Daddy's playing. That's one goal. It's going okay. And the other is that we get to sing a worship song together, a few, few of them typically on a night. And the one that we've been singing on repeat these past several weeks has been the song 10,000 Reasons. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul. We're singing that song. I'm familiar with that one. We sing that over and over. And I'll, I'll play it kind of lightly on the piano. And my four older kids here who can all talk, they belt that song out. And it reverberates off the walls. And my home is just filled with kids saying, Bless the Lord, oh my soul. And it's named, that name, 10,000 Reasons, because there's a couple lines in there. One specifically that talks about the 10,000 reasons to sing your praises. And my kids are singing, belting this out. My little Mara, who just turned two. 10,000 reasons for my heart to find to sing and praise you. They have no idea. They have no idea what is really meant by those words. It's my job to teach them. I teach them the songs. I teach them how to sing those songs. I teach them verses. I teach them Bible stuff. It's not going to make sense. They're going to be too little. It's like when a kid learns the alphabet, it's just a song. It means nothing to them until you take those letters. You know that letter A? It sounds like this. And it looks like this. And you can put it into words. And now you can read and write and communicate. They have no idea yet. It's my job to teach them these things. And I look forward to teaching them of all these reasons to sing and to praise God. You know, there's so many people who neglect God all day long, all week long, who forsake God, who have a thousand good things in their life. They're, they're healthy. They have family and friends around them. They have a good job. They can pay the bills. They put their head down every night and don't worry about what's going to happen. And they wake up the next morning and things are okay. And their toothbrush and toothpaste is right there again. And they have food in the cupboard and they get in their car that can take them to work. And they go to work and they hang around people who are nice to them typically. And they get to do what they're supposed to do. They get a paycheck, go home. They live in a country that's free. In a world that's filled with so many blessings, they get to go home and look out their window and see these gorgeous mountains out here. Even when, it's, even when there's rain, all the clouds, and they just get to see all of this all the time, all this good stuff, and they never say a word to God. But then the moment one bad thing happens, they go, God, where were you? You know this? This happens all the time in the world. People who have no acknowledgement of God, maybe even those who claim to be atheists or claim to have no religion or no faith, never go to a church. They never open a Bible. They never pray to God. They never acknowledge him. They live in the flesh, pursue whatever they want, whenever they want all their life, and something bad happens, and they go, where were you, God? I don't want my kids to be like that. I don't want me to be like that. I don't want you to be like that. Ten thousand reasons. That doesn't even come close to the number of reasons that we have to praise God. Not even close. I don't think we can overdo this. We don't need to worry about overdoing it. 
No one needs to be worried about getting to heaven and looking back in their life and going, man, man, I wasted so much time praising God. No one's going to think that way. Here's my hope today as we get into our text. My hope today is to alert you to areas of your life where you might not be giving God the praise that he's due. In fact, it might be the case that there could be whole categories of your life that you haven't even applied that idea of praising God to. My hope is to multiply your worship and your praise that you would leave here and you would do what I said at the beginning is, is my goal is to help you glorify God more. You'd see more of this. And I hope that Ruth, chapters 2, verses 14 through 23 will serve you, through 20, will serve you well today. I'm going to go ahead and read that passage, pray, and then we'll dive into it again together. Starting in verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Ruth, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Let's pray. Father, please help us in this word this morning. Help us to see you more clearly. Help us to love you more deeply. Help us to worship you with this text in our minds and help it to stick and to linger. Lord, please, if there's something in the mind that might be obstructing in our heart that might be distracting this morning, I pray that you would clear room off of the, the desktop of our thinking so we'd have a clear place to set this and think about it and ponder it this week. We ask your help in these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 14. Quick back up. You might remember that this point in the book of Ruth Ruth is a woman who's from Moab. She lived there with her family. And Naomi, who was a wife of a man from Bethlehem in Israel, in the area of Judah, they headed out of the town because of a famine. They went to Moab. The two adult sons got married to some Moabite women, Ruth being one of them. Naomi's husband and sons both die. And over the course of 10 years, they live in Moab until... God blesses the land in Bethlehem. There's plenty of food around. And Naomi says, let's go back. I'm going back. And Ruth refuses to abandon her mother and new mother-in-law and goes with her. Ruth now at this point has gone gleaning. That means she gets to go into the fields and pick up whatever the harvesters have left behind. It was a law in 
ancient Israel where they had to leave things behind so that the poor and the sojourner could come and grab some of that and have some food for themselves. So Ruth goes out to find some food for her and her mother-in-law, and she happens upon the field belonging to Boaz, who just so happens to be a relative of Naomi. Boaz shows great favor. She's gracious to, he is gracious to her, and he makes sure that she's well provided for. And this is where the story picks up in verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. So Ruth had been working since the early morning, trying to get some of this barley and Boaz invites her to lunch. Mealtime's a sacred thing in this culture, and so it's not an insignificant deal that he would invite her to come along and to rest with them, and he actually provides food for her at that time. Enough, in fact, that she was beyond satisfied. She had a little doggy bag to take home with her. Extra. Full belly. Next verse says, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. You might remember last week we were in here, I told you that the law was that they had to leave some of the fallen grain and barley and wheat, whatever it would be in the field for the poor person to come and get. But here, Boaz waits until she gets up and she's no longer in earshot. And he tells his young men, there were young women there as well. He didn't let them hear. He just told the young men, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Don't, don't push her away. Let her come. Let her, let her be taken care of. And also, also, he goes farther, pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. This was more than what the law demanded. Pull out extra, pull out more, drop it on the ground, leave more for her. Now, why is it significant that he tells them just to leave it on the ground? He, he could have just been like, here, Ruth, come over here. Man, give her, give her, give her a sheaf, a sheaf full of uh, barley. Just let her take it with her. He could have gotten up and brought it to her and been like, oh, Ruth, you poor young woman. Let me provide this great charity to you. You could have gathered all the people in the field and made sure that everyone knew, but he didn't. He could have made great overtures about his generosity. You might remember that Jesus said in Matthew chapter six, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. In fact, he says that when you care for the poor, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Don't do it to get a claim from people. Do it because it honors and pleases God. That's how Boaz acts. Just leave it. Let, let, let her come get it. Just let her work to grab it. Just, but make sure that she has enough. How tempting could it have been for him to have scored some good guy points? Ruth probably didn't even know that he did this for her. At least didn't know that the command was given to her men. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So at the end of the day, long day worth of work from early morning till the evening, she's got an ephah of barley. Now, 
That's somewhere around six gallons full of beaten out grain. That's 5.8 gallons. You know what a five gallon bucket looks like, right? This would be 30 to 40 pounds of food that she'd be taking home. In addition to the little meal bag that she's able to bring home from her leftovers from lunch. Can you imagine this little woman trying to carry 30 to 40 gallons worth of blessing back to her mother? A big smile on her face. Can't believe how much she's been blessed that day. All the way back to the city of Bethlehem from out in the fields. God has certainly provided for Naomi. Previously, Ruth had even said that she would stick by her mother-in-law. But now we see that Ruth did not only provide companionship, she's actually providing food. She's caring for Naomi. Naomi's the recipient of tons of blessing in this story from beginning to end. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi's amazed. And look, she assumed that someone must have taken notice of her. She could not have gleaned so much without help. She didn't go, well, you had a pretty good haul today. She's like, no, 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 no. Somebody must have blessed you. You don't just walk off a field with that much unless somebody took care of you. Who was it? I want you to note again something that I made note of last time we were in this passage. Naomi did not know that Ruth was going to Boaz's field. She's like, who is, who's the one who blessed you? Blessed be whoever it is. This is so significant because Ruth did not target Boaz's generosity. Naomi did not send Ruth to that particular field. It was not a coordinated plan. It was not concocted or prearranged in order that they would have blessing. After reading this, people would not say, thank you, random chance. Ooh, lucky for Naomi. Lucky and fortunate for Ruth. They knew that God was at work. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. God is working. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So she knows who he is. This is where I want to pause in the text for today. And I want want to show you something here. Naomi attributes this blessing, the goodness that's befallen her, to the kindness of God. I want to pause for a quick second because as believers, you're going to be like, yeah, amen, praise God, move right on. But I want to pause and consider why is this a good thing for her to attribute this good to God? She's already said, blessed be Boaz. Thank you, Boaz. What a, what a blessed man. She says it right here. May he be blessed by the Lord. But she names the Lord. He's the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Think about this for a moment. Ruth chose to go into the fields. Boaz chose to be gracious to her. Good resulted from it, yet Naomi praises God. How does this work? Was it Boaz who was kind to Ruth or was it God? Was it Ruth who found Boaz's field or was it God? 
The answer is yes. See, there are two parallel truths in the Bible that must be understood. They run through virtually every page of Holy Scripture. And these two parallel truths are God's unlimited sovereignty and man's responsibility. Simply put, God is sovereign. Man is responsible. You and I, as creatures created by God, are free to operate according to our greatest desires. Simply put, we do whatever we want to do. That's how we act. And we're held accountable for it. So after you leave here, you're going to go out to lunch or you're going to go home and get something out of the fridge. Why are you going to choose what you choose? Because you wanted it. And now you might be like me, goes home and there's a handful of leftovers in the fridge. But I know that while I want that leftovers, my kids might want it more. And I want happy kids. So I'll pick the other stuff. But at the end of the day, I pick what I want. But at the same time that we make those choices, genuine, real choices, God is actively exercising his ultimate free will over ours. How does this work? I don't know. I don't know. But it's on nearly every page of Scripture. These two truths, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, are most clearly displayed, probably, concurrently in judgment. And the reason I think that's the case is because that's the point at which we see man held responsible for his actions. How do we see man's responsibility most clearly? When he's being held responsible for his actions. We see these two truths going together in judgment. God can will that people freely act in a certain way and at the same time will that they be judged for it. I want to show you a few places in Scripture. Joshua chapter 11. This is when the Israelites were coming into the promised land. They were told that they were to cleanse the land of the Canaanites. They were to expel the Canaanites, literally put to the sword all of Canaan. The seven nations that were occupying this land that had been under God's judgment for hundreds of years because of their wickedness. And this is what it says about those Canaanites in Joshua eleven twenty. For it was the Lord's doing to harden the Canaanites' hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. For what purpose? In order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. You see these two things at play? So if you were to ask a Canaanite before the battle, why are you here? Why are you going to go fight the Israelites? He would say, because I want to fight Israel. Because it's in my heart to fight them. That's what he'd tell you. He wouldn't say, I don't want to, but I feel I'm being pulled to it. He would say, I want to. I want to kill those Israelites. And yet, God says that it was his doing for the purpose that they would be devoted to destruction. 1 Samuel 2.25, this was the time right after the story of Ruth when Samuel was high, uh, not before Samuel's high priest, Eli was high priest. Eli had two wicked sons and these guys were doing all kinds of nasty things. They were literally stealing portions of the offerings that were supposed to be given to God. 
They were sleeping around with the young women who worked in and around the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the whole, whole body of Israelites knew this. They, they saw it. It was an abomination. And Eli got wind of it. And he went to them to rebuke them for it. And in his rebuke, he tells them, you guys, this is not okay. You sin against man, you're going to be in trouble. You sin against God, you're done. So he calls to them to repent. This is what it says of Eli's sons. But they would not listen to the voice of their father. Why? Why would they not listen to the rebuke? For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. They were responsible for their sin and for their refusal to repent. And it was the will of the Lord. Deuteronomy 2.30 says, but Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. Remember, this was, the, this was the, the king who would not permit the Israelites on their way out of Egypt and their wandering to pass through the land. Please, King Sihon, let us pass through your land. We won't, we won't go left or right. We're not going to take any drinks from your wells. We're not going to take any of your food. We're just going to pass through. Please give us passage. And he said, no. Why? Why did he say no? For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate. Why? That he might give him into your hand, destroy him in battle, as he is this day. That's why God did this. The king of Heshbon was responsible for his sin, and God was sovereign in what went down. God can and does exercise his sovereignty over the heart and decisions made by people at the same time that people remain fully responsible. We see this happens in judgment, but this also happens when God's exercising compassion, when his sovereign kindness is being poured out. We see the same truth displayed. Genesis 50, 20. This is at the end of the life of the man whose name was Joseph. You might remember the story of Joseph. Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Israel, 12 sons of Jacob, who would later be called Israel. His older brothers despised him, and so they actually sold him into slavery, where he'd go into Egypt as a slave, and God did mighty things through him there, and eventually he rose to prominence and power. And God used Joseph to store up seven years of plenty so that when famine swept multiple regions in that area, God would provide for his people through Joseph. And this is what is said when Joseph acknowledges all that had gone down. His brothers were all upset. They knew that after their father had passed away, oh, no, 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 you're going to try to kill us now, Joseph, because of what we did to you back then. Please, please, we'll be your slaves. We'll be your servants. And Joseph says this to his brothers. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So why did it happen? Why did Joseph get sold into slavery? Because they meant to do evil. Let's ask it again. Why did Joseph get sold into slavery? Because God meant to do good by it. Were the brothers at fault? Yeah. Did God ordain those events to pass? Yeah. Look at Daniel 1, 9. Daniel was one of the young men who was taken from Israel into captivity in Babylon. 
And while there, he was singled out with a handful of other Israelites to be challenged to see if they would be able to be counselors for King Nebuchadnezzar and the subsequent Babylonian kings. It says this in Daniel 1.9, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. You ever pause on verses like that and go, wait, 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 what? God gave Daniel favor. Why was Daniel looked upon with favor? Why did the eunuch prefer Daniel over others? Because of something in Daniel? Because of something in the chief eunuch, the one in charge? God says, because God, that's why. That's why literally the emotional response, the thought process of the eunuch was ordained by God, that he would favor Daniel. Look at Jeremiah 42, 11 through 12. Jeremiah was a prophet, wicked king of Israel at this time, comes, or, uh, Judah comes before. Jeremiah is like, oh no, we're really in big trouble. Babylon's coming. We got to do something about this. We're thinking we're going to run off to Egypt. Tell us, Jeremiah, what is God telling us to do? And this is what Jeremiah prophesies. Jeremiah says, do not fear the king of Babylon of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. How is it that God said that he would deliver Israel from the hand of Babylon? I, God, will grant you mercy that he, Nebuchadnezzar, may have mercy on you and let you remain in your own land. How can God say such a thing? Because God can display his sovereign mercy by bringing about mercy in the heart of a king. Just think about this all over. The outcome of every battle in the Bible, to whom is it attributed to? To whom is success in battle attributed? God. How many arrows does God shoot? How many times did God, with his hand, swipe the sword? And yet God is sovereign over every battle. The Bible tells us these things. The Bible tells us literally that every government authority has been instituted by God. That means even elected ones. Did President Trump become president because people freely elected him or because God was sovereign over who would be president? Yes! Both. God's sovereignty is unlimited. You know, many people have a real problem with this because they feel the tension. Do you feel the tension? Do you sense the tension? Do you taste it in verses like this? If you allow yourself to pause and go, wait, 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 Naomi, wait, Naomi, you're telling me that you're praising God for what Boaz did? If you think about that for a moment, you're praising God that because Ruth chose to go this direction, to the right, and eventually found herself in that field instead of choosing to go left. You're praising God for her choice to do that? Do you sense the tension? I do. And so I think many people conclude that either God is sovereign or man is responsible. It has to be one or the other. They can't, they can't fit. So it has to be one or the other. And because you and I all know that we're responsible, we know it in our hearts. None of you are going to go get lunch and say, I want a number two. Oh, God made me choose that. I didn't even want it. None of you are going to do that. You're going to say, why'd you choose it? Because I, I wanted it. Why did you choose that color of car? Because I, I wanted it. Why'd you put on those socks? I, I 
made sense at the time. That's what you're going to say. All of our experience tells us this. The whole Bible holds us accountable and responsible for all the things that we do. Yes, you're responsible. And because that's so understood, that's such a given, it's so intuited by us, we conclude oftentimes, well, that must mean God is not sovereign. That must mean that if I am the one doing all that, God can't also somehow exercise sovereignty over that. But I don't believe that scripture permits that conclusion. So think about this. When you pray for God to show up in a situation that requires a certain decision to be made by a person, is God helpless? I'll give you an example. Say you just had an interview for a job that you really need. You're praying, God, please, I need this job. Lord, I need this job. Please, please let me get this one. This would be perfect. It's the schedule aligns, the money aligns, this lo- location is great. I'd love to work here. This would be a huge blessing on me, my home, my family. Lord, please do this. And the f- your future at that company depends on the choice of the one making the hire. They interviewed 10 people that day and they're going to have to decide based upon favor and merit and all kinds of different things that might be on the resume. They're going to have to conclude who to choose. And you pray to God for help. Does God go, I I can't help you. He has to choose. I I can't make him choose you. There's no limit to God's sovereignty. Yeah, you can pray to God for that. This is one of the things that makes our God so unique. Amongst all the other little G gods over all the world, the ones that the Bible tells us about all the time, the ones that, if you remember back to chapter one of Ruth, the, one that, the ones that Orpah, Ruth's sister-in-law, went back to worship. Those gods. All the nations had gods. Every nation today has gods. Most of them have multiple gods. And you know the way that this works out. You know the way the multiple gods plays. Each one has jurisdiction on these little gods. Each of these individual gods has jurisdiction over a restricted amount of authority. And so if you're going to war, you pray to the war god because the war god's in charge of war. If you have crops, you pray to the god of crops, the god of wheat or of barley. If you need fish in the river, you pray to the river god. If you need the oceans to bring all the good in, you pray to the God of the sea. If you need the sky to open up rain, you pray to the sky, God. If you need the sun to melt the snow and thaw the ice and give you spring, you pray to the God of the sun. If you need to see where you're going at night, you pray to the God of the moon and the stars. This is the way it works all around the world. It still works that way for many people now. But there's a difference with our God. Each God in those systems has authority over one portion of the world. But our God is God of gods. All authority is our God's. He's Lord of lords. This is why over and over and over in judgment on other nations in the Bible, God displays that he's in control of the seas. He's in control of the crops. He's in control of war. He's in control of famine. God is. None of those other gods can do anything because they're not real. God is unlimited in his sovereignty. You know what the word sovereign means? The word sovereign, that that prefix sovereign, is the same 
prefix as super. That's actually the same if you go chase them back in language far enough. That means that God is super reign, super king. He is over as a king. It literally means, our English word sovereign literally means highest supreme chief. Nothing higher. Not man. Not any creature in the heavenlies. God is supreme. This is why it is proper and it is right for a Christian to ask God to direct a person's heart and mind and volition and beliefs. You can do that. In fact, I bet you there's a spiritual intuition for you this way. You do it already, maybe not even thinking about it. How do you pray for unbelievers in your life? You say, Lord, soften her heart. Lord, change his heart. God, draw that one to you. Help that one see that you are what is worthy and good. That you are the only hope for ultimate joy and good and peace. Lasting pleasures in eternity. Why do we pray that? Because we know God doesn't go, I can't touch their choices. I can't mess with their heart. I can't. I'm not, it's, that's, that's the line. That's the line of boundaries. I, don't, I can't step over that line. Of course we don't know that. We, God does change the heart. He softens hearts. He draws people. God exercised his sovereign kindness through Ruth. To bring her to Boaz's field. It wasn't random. It wasn't happenstance. God directed her. Furthermore, God exercised his sovereign kindness through Boaz's generosity. The moral of the story is not, if you have a hard time, here's Ruth's story. If you have a hard time, just find kind people and you'll be taken care of. That's not the moral of the story. It's that God is in control. And God is working even wicked, difficult, awful, terrible situations, loss, pain, suffering, struggle for your good. Naomi acknowledged this. And the ultimate act of kindness being displayed in this situation was not that of Ruth, who refused to abandon her mother-in-law, nor Boaz, whose generosity is being on display and poured onto these two women, but God, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. So that's the doctrine. But why does that matter for me today? Here's why. Because God is sovereign over every situation in your life, he deserves credit for every good thing. God deserves praise and worship for every good that you have in your life. There's another side of this that we'll cover other times. What do we do with the hard stuff that God is sovereign over also? But in this text now, Naomi's acknowledging, oh, I'm receiving good because God is kind. Do you thank God? Do you thank God for every good? For every blessing? James 1.17, New Testament says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The only way verses like this are possible is because God intervenes. God intervenes. I want you to respond like Naomi. I want you like Naomi who says, God is the one who brought the famine. God is the one who relieved them of the famine. God is the one who brought calamity upon me. And now God is the one whose kindness is relief, giving me relief. 
That's what I want for you. I want for you to praise God in all of that. You and I don't even know all the good things that we have. You know, I learned this last week. I learned that the human stomach with all the acids inside are designed to break down the food and stuff like that. Those acids are so intense, they actually break down your stomach. And so that literally the lining of your stomach has to, has to kind of regenerate cells over and over and over so that every three to four days, you have an entirely new stomach. Twice a week, totally new stomach, all new cells. What? Have you ever thanked God for your self-regenerating stomach? How about the lesser known parts of your body? You don't even, there are things that scientists don't know. I don't know what this is for. It must not be needed. You're like, wait, 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 wait. Don't take it out. Leave it. Look, my car can run without a muffler, but leave it. All those things that God has done for your body, you work and move and you, you can breathe and you can, you can feel and it's amazing what God has given you. You thank God for that? You know, we have, you know how a compass works, right? Because of the, points north, and ultimately because of the magnetic fields of the earth, there's literally, uh, with the, the nickel iron core and the magnetic fields around the earth, and because of the rotation of it, the, the earth has this amazing ability to literally repel comets and asteroids coming in, like a force field, literally, like a force field God put around earth. Did you ever thank God for the invisible force field around our planet that keeps comets from landing on your living room? You will now. <laughs> You know, you drove here today, or were driven here today. I'm guessing no one walked. And you may think I'm a pretty good driver. My wife's a good driver. My husband's a good driver. Whoever was driving today, you may think that, but what about the person next to them? You stopped at stoplights today, and everyone stopped. You made it. You thank God for making it where you need to go with all the fools on the road to include you and me. Thank God for those things. Every good thing, every good thing, even those good things that come, and here's the category, come through the decisions of people in your life. That means that when your boss decided to give you a raise, God provided that raise. When a selection committee at a college you're trying to get into is determining whether or not you should get into that college and they say yes, you should thank God. You don't just go, God, did you hear? Did you hear what they did? Oh, yeah, yeah. You're welcome. When you pray that your wife or your husband would have a heart change, and they do, you thank God. When your atheist neighbor doesn't acknowledge God exists, when they see you left your garage door open, and they go over and close it for you so nothing wanders off. Do you thank God that just because God is good, he can literally care for you through someone who hates him? Do you, do you, do you feel that? You see what I mean when I say hold a telescope up and look? We might, we might get this star, this supernova, billions of light years away to come a little closer. And, and what used to be the size of like a pinpoint is now the size of a quarter. And we're like, whoa, yeah, you know what? It's bigger than a quarter. That's the way it is. We look at the Bible. We see God. He's so much bigger than we ever could have imagined. You know, the apostle Paul praised God for what people did all the time. 
He routinely does. Look at Romans 1 8. First, I thank my God for Romans. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Wait, time out, wait. People are proclaiming the faith of Romans. You're thanking God? Why? Because God is behind all of this. He says in 2 Thessalonians 1 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. I thank God because you are faithful and loving. That's awesome. Consider this. Do you know why it is that people who do not love God are under judgment today? Look what Paul says in Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. See that? He said, I I refuse to acknowledge God. I will not thank God for all these immeasurable blessings that I get. Let us not be like that. You and I don't thank God for nearly as much as we should. I think it's common for Christians, especially when we are enduring hard seasons to feel like God is not there. This is so common. Sit down, believers, try to help my brothers and sisters in faith and talk through struggles and things all the time. And people say, man, I just feel in this really hard season like God's not there. I pray to him and he just doesn't show up. And I ask him to do this one thing and it's just, he's not doing it. I just ask the same thing over and over and he's not there. You breathe in today? You paying your bills this week? Do you have a Bible and access to it? Most of us within arm's reach at any given moment of any given day? If it's his word? Do you have safety nets all around you of friends and family who would never, ever let your children starve? Oh, God is good. And even when we're feeling like God is distant, God is not with me, he's right there. He's actively dumping tons of blessing and care and good on your life in the midst of the struggle. Every good thing that you experience, God deserves praise for it. Now, on one part, I don't think this is a hard sermon to preach. And the reason I think that, number, I don't have to convince you of anything. I point you to the word and I show you the things that I see that I think that are held in tension and yet clearly true. But one of the things I've got going for me today is I think that you intuitively know this. I think there's something innate in you that came alive when you were spiritually born again as a believer that you have a natural, or maybe I should say supernatural tendency to praise God for good in your life. In other words, I don't think I have to convince you of something you didn't believe was true. I think I get to fan into flame something that's already there. I said at the beginning of the sermon, my hope would be to help point you to and expose to your eyes. There might be things, categories of things in your life that you're not actively praising God for that you should. You can't overdo this. You're not, you're not going to start praising God for something good and get to heaven and he goes, well, that wasn't me. You didn't, you didn't need to do that one. It's not going to happen. 
if for the next 10,000 days of our life, that's 27 years, next 10,000 days, you and I were to wake up every morning and spend that day thanking God for just one good thing that he has done in creation, your praise would still fall short of the worth of God. That's what heaven's for. Some people say, doesn't heaven sound boring? You just sit around forever just praising God. Doesn't it get boring? No! What? Every day you're learning new and wonderful, glorious, amazing truths about God. That, that, that galaxy that's coming closer and closer and closer for you to see it. Praising God again and again and again and again. Blessed be the Lord. Oh, my soul. Let's pray. Lord, make us a grateful people. Make us a people who 10,000 years of praising you and forevermore will never cease because we ache to thank you for good. Father, I know that there's many different kinds of stories in the Bible and we see all different kinds of good and bad experiences that people endure. Father, help us to be like Naomi here. I don't know how much is commendable about her, but here she sees and she knows God is behind this good. Lord, I pray that this week that we would spend the week thinking about the good that you've given to us, that we would, we would clear out time in our morning, that we would be able to sit down and write down the lists of good things that you've given to us, that we would not neglect to thank you for food and for, for taste buds to taste the food and for money to provide the food and for wood that built the table that our food goes on. Lord, we could, exa- we could never exhaust this. Help us to teach our children to thank you for these things. Lord, if there's anyone here today who's been struggling particularly with a kind of bitterness in a hard season where they're just maybe now are feeling impressed upon that perhaps they've just been whiny. Even, even for good reason, Lord, even because there's genuine pain and struggle. Lord, help teach that person how to offer you thanks and gratitude even in the midst of that frustration and that struggle. Lord, let us be a church that is marked by our gratitude, our smile on our face, even in the midst of struggle. Thank you, thank you, thank you. For the Lord... His everlasting kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.